Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Wednesday morning, the 19th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It was back to business in the Dáil yesterday with opposition once again focusing on what it says are many government failings in housing. I think we're making real progress and I think we need to build on the progress that's been made to date. And these are ambitious targets. And let's not forget that we met our key target key target was was to build more new homes of different types in Ireland last year. And we built roughly 30,000 new homes in Ireland last year, exceeding our target. And bear in mind that doesn't include student accommodation, it doesn't include derelict homes being brought back into use. And we exceeded uh, that target uh, last year um, and we're working towards uh, meeting it again this year as well. In terms of social housing, uh, 7,500 new homes built last year by local authorities, by approved housing bodies, and through Part 5. That is the highest number in decades. Uh, and that is a significant achievement. The Taoiseach defending the government's record on housing and once again the crisis dominated doll business with Leo Vratker facing strong criticism during leaders' questions before a long private members' debate on how €1 billion Euro was allocated for housing over a three-year period but that €1 billion Euro was never drawn down and remains unspent. We announced the figures yesterday. Uh, as you'll know, of our social housing delivery, uh, 10,263 social homes delivered in 2022. Of that, 7,433 were new-build social homes. And indisputable, indisputable, that is the highest amount of new-build social homes since 1975. But year on year, if you look at the overall social housing delivery, between 21 and 22, it's about a 12% increase on that. And over the two years... We have over 20,000 new social homes delivered. Is it enough? No, it's not. But is it scaling up on delivery? Absolutely it is. And some may not want to recognise that. And that is fine, because it might suit a political narrative. The Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, speaking in the Dáil to a Sinn Féin private member's motion last night. The pressure doesn't stop there, nor the criticism of uh, the government's handling of uh, this critical issue. Uh, another Dáil motion will be debated in the next hour. It's being tabled by the Social Democrats and is calling for a vacant homes tax that has serious teeth. Uh, we'll hear about that in a moment. Keno Callaghan is uh, the Social Democrat spokesperson on housing uh, and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us as always today, Keno O'Callaghan. Uh, before we talk about the vacant homes tax, maybe we could talk a little bit more uh, about that one billion euro that went unspent. Uh, you told the Dáil last night that that could have resulted in 10,000 new homes. Good morning, uh, Michael. Yeah, the, I mean, that, you know, it's, it's very hard for anyone to understand in the uh, 
current housing disaster that we have, how such a huge amount of money that was allocated for housing uh, hasn't been spent. And when you take, when you break down that, you know, building an affordable home or a social home, it usually uses subsidy, an upfront subsidy of about between 50,000 and 100,000 euro and the rest is financed, you know, through loan finance that's paid over a number of years. You you could easily build uh, 10,000 homes uh, with that billion euro that wasn't spent. So that's 10,000 uh, families that would be taken out of, you know, the private rent sector, insecure accommodation there, or people growing up in their childhood bedrooms into their 20s and 30s or people living in emergency homeless accommodation that would make a phenomenal uh, difference so mm. it really is you know I don't think anyone expects necessarily the, the government to spend the budget you know necessarily get it right by the last centre or anything like that but I think people would like to see you know overruns of anything in, in housing more money being spent than is allocated especially in the context of huge corporation. Uh, receipts coming in of you know they're projecting billions of, of euro of surpluses, but actually to have a, have a billion allocated over the last three years that wasn't spent really is un- unforgivable, and it does make a critical difference. You know that could have made a critical difference in people's lives if it mm. had been spent. I imagine everybody agrees it's unforgivable given the crisis that there is, but is it the fault of government? Well, it's, it's absolutely their responsibility. This is the budget that they set. Uh, they have the responsibility of taking in tax revenue, of, of borrowing, everything else, doing up budgets, making plans, setting targets. So this is their budget that they haven't spent, that they allocated. These are their targets that they set, that they promised to deliver, that they failed to, to meet. These targets haven't been imposed on them by anyone else. Uh, they made the decisions about how to allocate the budget. So they absolutely have 100% responsibility uh, in terms of not doing this. And I mean, the point has been made that in other areas, including areas with uh, construction, there hasn't been uh, these large uh, underspends. Uh, if you look at the Department of Education, an extensive school building programme, we don't have those kind of large uh, underspends. And, you know, the, one of the main defences that the government has used this year is they said, well, there's been an issue with cost, price, inflation, mm. and therefore we've underspent our budget. Now, they must be the only government in the world saying we managed to underspend because prices went went up uh, considerably, uh, the cost of building homes went up considerably. That therefore means we did, an, you know, we did a huge underspend. That doesn't make sense. If anything, they should have been. It should have been quicker for them to be able to spend, and they should have been probably coming to the to the all towards the end of the year, looking to spend mm. additional funds uh, in housing, especially given the extra resources there and the extent of the crisis. Well, so they have the money. Very, they have the money. It's not a, a question of money. They there's, absolutely have the money. There's yeah. a windfall uh, tax there now from the corporation tax. Uh, the exchequer has never uh, been in better state. Uh, the government is flush with money. Uh, you reject the idea that it's construction inflation that has uh, resulted in fewer houses being built uh, and that the government is not uh, holding forth, waiting for those prices to come down, that in fact they should have been spending that money and more aside with all of the money they have. Uh, is it a question, though, of bureaucracy or, or red tape? Or is it that the government is incompet- incompetent? Uh, because it's explaining to us all that it's doing, how it's building more houses and providing more housing than ever before on one hand, but it's not meeting its targets, it's not spending the money it's allocated, and it's very hard for people to ascertain themselves, to come to a conclusion themselves, what's behind all of this? 
Yeah, I, I think there is an issue with, with bureaucracy and red tape and that hasn't been tackled by the government. It's been well flagged that there's a very considerable issue for local authorities and not-for-profit housing bodies that are trying to build social or affordable homes. They have to go through this very bureaucratic approval process uh, with the Department of Housing, the four-stage approval process, and that creates unnecessary delays and, and bureaucracy. And that, you know, that definitely needs to be streamlined uh, so that people who are charged with building housing I can get on with with doing it, so that that is one element of it. But look, we're just not seeing the we're not seeing a hands-on approach from the government on this. They they're they're fine at setting the targets, they're they're fine at making the kind of promises. But in terms of rolling up the sleeves and getting into the details of delivery, you don't see evidence of that. For example, the Land Development Agency has been reports now that they've refused a whole range of sites that they've been offered to deliver affordable homes. For example, in Limerick, they were offered 16 different sites for affordable homes by other state agencies and public bodies, and they turned these down. Now, this is happening at a time when the government is way behind on its own targets to provide affordable purchase uh, homes uh, for, for people. So why is the, the agency they've charged with delivering affordable housing turning down land and sites for affordable housing when they are so far behind. And if they hit a surplus, or are they the enough land or enough affordable homes coming through, you might kind of go, okay, you know, that there might be some rationale for that. But when there's so few affordable purchase homes coming through, it doesn't make sense. And I don't get the sense, you know, from the government that are getting involved in that. You get the sense that they're stepped back from that, that they, you know, that they're kind of tolerating this kind of inertia that you have. Uh, and... You know, it's not good enough just to make the high-level decisions. You, you have to get, you know, put the shoulder to the wheel after that and, and work on the implementation as well. And I think that's where they're they're falling down in a way when there's the country has good finances. Making those high-level decisions is relatively mm-hmm. easy. It's the implementation that, that absolutely really matters and it's the detail on that that matters. And it's not just about building houses. There's a lot of houses that are unoccupied in the country and many people wonder why that is the case. And sometimes it's because somebody is sitting on it. And there is a vacant property tax at just over point. Uh, 3% of uh, the value of uh, the property. Your motion today will call for that to be increased from just over 0.3% to a full 10% of the value of the property. Yeah, we think it's it's time to get serious, not just about the housing crisis, but the level of vacancy as well. There is at, you know, at least 100,000 vacant homes around the country that could be brought back into use and should be brought back into use. And the 0.3% tax on that, I don't think that's going to be effective. It's a tax rate that's designed to fail. It doesn't have teeth. And you know, when you're looking at considerable house price inflation, as there has been over the last year, if someone is a is a speculator and they're sitting on an empty property and just hoping for prices to rise, a 0.3% uh, tax on that isn't going to be a particular deterrent uh, to them. So we need to be serious about this. I mean, we're not uh, 100% hung up that it has to be 10%. We want a serious rate mm. brought in by the government. If they brought in any sort of a serious rate, in this, we would support them on that. And then I think it's important to say as well, for this to work, of course, there has to be fair exemptions when there's genuine reasons for vacancy, you know, if a house is going through probate or if someone, uh, you know, is receiving, you know, long-term care, yep. that their, their mm-hmm. home is empty. For those reasons, for that, of course, is fine and they should be should be exempt uh, for those reasons. Okay, but in 10 or 15 years, uh, the value of the property would be gone because you'd have paid it in taxes. 
Well, the, the, the reason behind the tax isn't to take the value of the, the property. The reason is to change the behaviour on it. So mm. when a, a home is sitting idle, the, what we're trying to do is make sure that the owner either uses it, rents it out, uh, or sells it. Mm. And this, is, this isn't the only solution in terms of our housing crisis. There's no question yeah. to be building more social, affordable homes. But we do have to get our existing stock uh, into use. And when you think of, you know, a lot of these homes were built with considerable public assistance over the years. Some of these would have been built as local authority homes originally uh, before being, being sold on. Uh, some would have been built with the assistance of grants, the first-time buyer grants and, and everything else. So there has been, you know, public contribution towards our uh, our housing stock. And I don't think it's, you know, that we can tolerate in the kind of crisis we have underutilised so much. There's environmental benefits from using existing houses uh, as well. There's quite a substantial you know, carbon emissions from every time you build a new home. So and we do need more new homes, but yeah. it is more environmentally friendly to use existing homes. Most of these are in existing cis- uh, cities, towns and villages you know, with existing infrastructure, services, schools, shops. So, you know, and it obviously you know, getting these back into use then lifts these areas uh, uh, as uh, well. A lot of the properties would require serious refurbishment uh, and I'm sure it's true that in some cases at least uh, the owner of the property can't afford the refurbishment and if they're going to face a, a 10% property tax, vacant property tax, uh, that could be a, a serious situation for them to find themselves in. If the property is put up for sale, would that exempt somebody from having to pay this tax? Yeah, that, that is the, the, the situation with vacant homes tax. So if it's put up for sale or rent, it is uh, exempt. And because I mean, you may not be able to sell it either because some of them are quite derelict. Well, so, I mean, firstly, just to say that the uh, that the, there are some grants uh, available for people who want to, you know, refurbish uh, vacant dwellings. Uh, secondly, the longer a home is vacant, the worse the condition it gets, gets into and the more work it's mm-hmm. going to require. So... It's a good idea, I think, in terms of our taxation system, not to encourage long-term vacancy because, you know, a long-term vacant home will turn into a derelict home then that requires uh, more work. But but then it is to encourage that, that uh, you know, if, if if necessary, then prices need to need to fall to get these uh, into use. If someone owns a home, doesn't have the, the wherewithal to uh, use it, renovate it, um, then they should be uh, selling that uh, home so it can be brought back into use uh, because we, we can't afford, you, you know, we can't afford to have all these empty homes at a time of a national crisis on mm. housing. If if we were in a different situation and, we, you know, we didn't have almost 12,000 people in emergency homeless accommodation, we didn't have record numbers of people in their 20s and 30s living in their childhood bedrooms, then, you know, we could take a different uh, view on this. I don't think we have that uh, luxury. Okay. Well, your motion today will uh, pile pressure on top of the existing pressure on government uh, that uh, debate gets underway in the next half hour or so. So we leave it there and allow you to go into the chamber and thank you for joining us on the programme in advance. That's Keen O'Callaghan, Social Democrats spokesperson on housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a number of protests have uh, taken place uh, across the country at libraries, and library staff are said uh, to be the subject of intimidation from 
A uh, number of people who are concerned about some of uh, the books uh, that are being carried in at the library, stored in the libraries uh, and available to young people to read in relation uh, to LGTBQ plus sexuality. Uh, we're joined now by local Fianna Fáil councillor John Sheridan. A, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, they're described as inappropriate books aimed at 12 to 17 year olds promoting gender ideology and pornography. Uh, Are you aware of these books? Uh, And I understand uh, that uh, there's been some problems uh, from protesters in County Louth as well. Yeah, in in, in recent weeks, Michael. So uh, actually over the weekend, there was a lot of social media activity on the Louth County Council Twitter page where there was a lot of abusive and derogatory comments to the library staff, which is very concerning in relation to the contents of material that are in the Louth County Council libraries. Um, Louth County Council did brilliant investment in 2021 in actually bringing LGBT plus books mm. into our local libraries to have them there as resources uh, for people of all ages uh, to inform them uh, on, and to have literature in relation to LGBT people. Okay. Uh, Juno Dawson has uh, two books that are being objected to. One is called This Book is Gay and What's the Tea? Uh, there's Yay, You're Gay, Now What? Uh, by Riyad Kaloff. Uh, Sex Ed, an inclusive teenage guide to sex and relationships by the School of Sexuality, Education and Trans Teen Survival Guide by Owl and Fox Fisher. These are just some of the titles that people are objecting to and they describe them as gender ideology and pornography. Well, as, as far as I'm concerned, and the point I made at Louth County Council on Monday is that if people have individual issues, they should raise them with the library or with the county council uh, to my knowledge it seems to be very much online based and raising issues online as opposed to raising them directly with the council uh, I trust the judgement of librarians I trust the judgement uh, mm. of having age appropriate books who, in deci- schools. who, who decides that these are for 12 to 17 year olds I presume that the librarians in and of themselves while carrying out purchases and ultimately if these books are across the country in mm. libraries there's obviously agreement yeah. that they are age appropriate and I should just say as well in relation to local schools as well um, Local, I spoke to one local school principal in relation to this issue yesterday uh, and similarly local schools would have uh, this kind of age appropriate uh, material in schools as well. Right, uh, it is librarians with professional expertise uh, that uh, do order these books in uh, and there are restrictions uh, based on age but these are deemed appropriate for 12 and to 17 year olds. Do, do you know anything about the, the, the books themselves? Uh, I mean we can garner something from the titles. Well, put as, I, I've seen some of the selective um, screenshots of individual books um, that, ha- that have been referenced. I'm also aware because I've been involved in some of the book launches in the Louth County Libraries there's a whole range of books, both historical and otherwise in relation to LGBT people but I would say there is an importance there as well of providing education providing information, um, whether that be in local outcomer centres, whether mm-hmm. it be in schools and be in libraries because accessing information above all is actually very important to young people in an age-appropriate manner. Okay, and there's an under-12 section in the libraries uh, which would prevent Mm. children under the age of 12 from accessing these books. Uh, Between 12 and 14, as I understand it, uh, they need consent from their parents, they need written consent uh, from their parents to uh, be moved up into that category. Uh, And then you're talking about 15 to Mm. 17-year-olds who would be the minors, uh, if you like, uh, who maybe access these books if people are worried about them. And uh, when, when we look, Michael, even school curriculums 
the books that were in school curriculums even when I was doing my leave insert um, there are there are books and they contain uh, particular uh, stories or, 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 or sexual related content mm. um, and if they're deemed to be part of the school curriculum and deemed to be age appropriate I, I think that that is that is, that is reasonable um, I should also say as well it's very important to actually be providing uh, information to people ultimately libraries are safe spaces they're mm. where people go um, I have a lot of information locally and nationally in relation to parents that parents wish to actually read up on this and a lot of parents would prefer that all children in secondary schools receive similar sex education whether that's straight or gay uh, because they don't know about mm. what the future holds for their own child they don't know who their friends or their children's best friends may be mm. and that they would prefer all children to be pr- to provided information inclusive inclusively um, and be able to read up on information like that mm. and uh, I think some of the objectors are suggesting on the internet uh, that people uh, report the books to the Gardaí which uh, obviously is completely nonsensical mm. uh, because this is not a, a criminal well, issue of any sort I, I, I want to acknowledge Michael but Loud County Council for their support in this and the support of the library staff I want to acknowledge the local Gardaí who I know have engaged with the mm. local LGBT groups this week in relation to this matter uh, in relation to providing advice on this and just to be clear rights for trans people have been enshrined in Irish law since 2015 it's eight years ago at this stage mm. so this is something I think a lot of the more recent comment um, is being whipped up I think it's mm. being whipped up internationally from the United, from the UK and the United States um, but these things that are enshrined in Irish law mm. they're perfectly legal here in Ireland marriage equality has been enshrined mm. we had a referendum but do you need to it. ram them down people's throats I suppose I, is the argument uh, they're suggesting that uh, this is part of a, a grooming process by abusers uh, and the perpetrators are, are trying to change the thinking of people if a heterosexual young boy or girl was to read one of these books Mm. would they end up gay or transsexual? Um, well, Michael, um, I uh, had to read different things when I was doing my leave insert, and it certainly didn't alter the course of uh, where I came to be as an adult. So uh, I would just say that. But ultimately, uh, libraries are safe spaces. If people wish to access information, whether they're gay or straight uh, or whether they're trans, it's important that information is there in a safe space for them. Okay. Do you think that these books are a good idea? Uh, because there's still a lot of stigma attached I- I, I would say, Michael, if people individually have either concerns or doubts, mm. the best thing they can do is mm. read people's stories. Uh, we have a number of different uh, times over recent years in mm. the referenda, and what is the single big, most powerful thing we could do is people to share their stories. That's the most important thing uh, in educating other people. Mm. So I think there's great value in having information in libraries um, in a safe space, uh, and I think we had decades of where information was covered up, where there wasn't appropriate sex education mm. for people. Well, um, that's still one of the criticisms. I mean, it's a criticism mm. that's uh, laid at uh, the department's uh, feet, uh, most often by young people who say, we didn't learn about a school, we're not learning in school, we're learning about it o- on the internet. Uh, is, is this a, a better way? Well, I, I think it's an option, and I think having good relationships and sexu- sexuality education at school, uh, I certainly wouldn't those people as well who would say that when, when I was at secondary school there was absolutely no word of LGBT people. Um, you know, and mm. I don't think that's right. People should be aware um, of, 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 of and have resources available there so if they wish to access that information people should learn and it's not just in relation to LGBT issues mm. because when I spoke to um, school leaders they all say that inclusive, inclusive, inclusivity and diversity mm-hmm. it also includes things like race and culture yeah. and disability as well and that makes 
school spaces far more tolerant. And I I would be aware in local schools, you're talking single digits of maybe where parents have asked for children not to partake. And I think that's reasonable mm. as well. OK, well, uh, perhaps uh, that's the case, but hiding it away uh, stigmatises it and makes people feel weird, uh, I think, because they don't know if there's anybody else like them. This yeah. sends a, a message to young people, you're not the only one. Well, and I, I think, Michael, maybe there's there's people listening where the parents or grandparents um, and I said, would they prefer their grandchildren have information to be able to go and live a full and loving life um, how many people are listening to the programme who maybe never got that information um, as, as a teenager or as a young adult themselves and maybe they've had a very very tough life and a ter- tough journey in life Alright this is uh, really just uh, showing its head if you like in County Loud uh, elsewhere in the country people have been going into libraries and trying to remove the books yeah. <laughs> what would you say to anybody who has concerns or, I, or I, who's I, reading this stuff on the I, internet? Well I, I would say first of all for people to wear that if, if they wish to go and participate take and, and read this information it's very important that it that it's there but also just to say if people have individual concerns I said at the council meeting on Monday um, my, my door is there if they want to raise mm. it to me I don't think um, abusing librarians and library staff in common sections on social media is an appropriate way to get things done or, or to raise things and if people have, have reasonable concerns issue for them to raise that but um, also and to come back with facts based evidence as to where the issue is with mm. those documents. It's the weirdest thing because um, when you're threatened or intimidated mm. abused whatever word you want to put on it like that mm. uh, well uh, it leads to people being fearful mm. uh, and it is the oddest thing to think that a librarian might be afraid to go to work I, I, I think it, it, libraries and librarians are the most placid and calm people that I can think yeah. of um, but I should also say as well because we, we have other great resources in the county in terms of outcomers in Dundalk and Drogheda and D-Hub and RD and a group of young people who actually met President Biden in the Windsor last Wednesday um, a group of people who are actually involved in the D-Hub which is a great LGBT group in RD and uh, to think that we would actually have all of those resources and safe spaces in the county so those uh, spaces are also available there Mm. um, to actually provide information and provide support for people. Mm. Is this um, kind of uh, small type of irrelevant story uh, that uh, is really relevant and big and important in the context of how a small number of people are still very fearful or um, uh, afraid or homophobic? Um, I, that's up to them to to, to, um, to identify. But ultimately, what I'm interested in is making sure that people who wish to live their lives in a safe, loving, caring way uh, can do that um, and that they have the sports of the state, uh, whether that be HSE or Louth County Council, mm. uh, in doing that, I think, is, is very important. And for anybody who does have fears in whatever way they are, don't be afraid to simply reach out, to talk to people, to listen to other people's stories, because it's very often in the human stories uh, that you find um, you find the most understanding. OK, somebody saying, uh, why are you talking about young people? Uh, these are children who are reading these books. Uh, is 12 years of age uh, an appropriate age, do you think, uh, to read something uh, about? I, I, I think it's very subjective, but I mm. think people need to be also realistic um, of the access that children have to the internet and to phones. Uh, and uh, I think very realistic to see children of all ages having access to phones so I think we need to be a little bit realistic about that um, and you know if access to information in a library is one thing but I think there's a lot of access there to the internet that I think parents should should have a, a certain concern about as well. Okay, John, thank you indeed uh, so for coming in to us uh, this morning. John Sheridan is a Fianna Fáil councillor on Louth County Council. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's an awful lot of talk about uh, the next budget already, and particularly because of how flush uh, the government is as a result of uh, the windfall corporation taxes uh, that we've been hearing about uh, over the last couple of days. But I, I don't know if you remember back to the last budget, uh, because at that stage, uh, the government had pledged to make €10 million euro available for publicly funded IVF treatment. Let's speak to Karen Ferguson, who's uh, the Group Director of Nursing and Clinical Services with SIMS IVF. And a very good morning to you, Karen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, you've been surveying people uh, who have had or would like to have uh, fertility treatment uh, and the cost is obviously proving prohibitive for many of them with 54% of people saying uh, that they would delay treatment until funding is made publicly. Hi Michael, yeah that's correct. So I suppose just as a bit of background about one in six couples in Ireland are struggling to conceive due to a variety of reasons. So although some of these investigations and medications can be completed through the public system, fertility treatments such as IVF currently is not publicly funded whatsoever, meaning patients are having to either self-fund or sometimes borrow money in order to start a family. So back in 2017, financial support for people going through fertility treatments such as IVF was first announced. And then, as you mentioned already, last year the government um, announced a £10 million um, funding for the 2023 budget for uh, these individuals. So while we really, we really warmly welcome this announcement of publicly funded treatment. Um, it was great to hear that we were finally being able to provide this for these uh, patients. There's still a real lack of clarity about the information and the plans at this stage, so we're more than six months on, and we currently have very little detail on exactly how the money will be spent or what the criteria will be to access the funding for these patients and what are the associated timelines. Okay, and uh, I take it it goes without saying uh, that you have a vested interest in this, obviously, and that it would result in in an increase in business for you. But what about your customers? What about the patients? Uh, What what are they facing into in terms of the cost of undergoing IVF treatment? Yeah, so the model of the programme itself and the model of the funding hasn't been announced, so uh, the clinics don't know any more than what the patients know at the minute about how that... To to, to go privately, Karen. So you're talking for an IVF cycle in Ireland. Your average, you're looking at on average around five thousand per cycle. Okay, I don't like the so, idea that it's per cycle. Uh, what typically would people do? How many cycles would they undergo before being successful? So on average, they say you can, you can need up to three cycles. Yes. Obviously, it varies a lot from one one couple to another, depending on a variety of things such as age, such as um, male male fertility, female fertility problems in their investigation. So it's difficult to say for sure what it takes for one person or one couple to become pregnant, but on average, um, they say generally up to three cycles. So mm-hmm. you know, with all of us in mind and with the limited details available, available publicly, we decided to engage with our patient base and our mm-hmm. wider network to understand what was their views and try and advocate for this group of people. And that feeds into one of the concerns that uh, the people you spoke to have, uh, because if it's three mm. cycles at an average of €5,000 a cycle, that's obviously €15,000. It's a, a lot of money in anybody's book, uh, and uh, a lot of people concerned about how many cycles will be covered if public funding is made available. Yeah, exactly. So we, we surveyed over 1,000 people, 1,088, back in March, some of which who had had treatment and others who hadn't. So 
Among that, about 90% were concerned about the potential age limits for the treatment, what would be the limit of, of the number of cycles, what were the criteria. Um, so just to name a few, about 96% were concerned about the access to IBS funding in terms of location and travelling. 85% were concerned about the number of cycles. 83% were worried about the age limits, 53 about BMI limits and different criteria set out. Um, so many of the above said that they would hold off having treatment in the hope that they would qualify for this funding. Are there age uh, limits if you go privately or are there BMI limits if you go privately? Yeah, it varies from one clinic to another. But if you look at places like the UK where there is some public funding, it's a bit of a postcode lottery. It depends on what area that you live in. Um, some clinics have criteria based on age, some based on BMI, some based on whether you have previous children. Um, so there are definitely, we, you know, we know there will need to be some sort of criteria, but we've had absolutely no guidance as to what that criteria will be. Okay. And to hear that these patients are holding off of treating, treatment and putting their lives on hold to wait mm. for this potential funding when they may not actually be eligible, is very difficult for us to hear and it's very difficult for this group of patients. So. The purpose of the survey was to try and capture that and be a voice for them. Okay. And what, what, what kind of guidance would Sims IVF uh, give uh, to women? Would it be preferable not to get pregnant in your 40s or in your 50s? It's, yeah, it depends on investigation. So the majority of clinics in, in Ireland have would recommend the age limit to be kind of early 40s for treatment. Now, it's, it, it, I don't want to say that as a blanket rule because it varies from one clinic to another and it does depend on the patient themselves. So I'm kind of reluctant to get into specifics on that. But mm. um, every patient needs to be informed of what their chances of success are and whether IVF treatment is suitable for them or not and what their chances would be so that they can make that informed decision. Okay, and this is starting a, a family, uh, which is a, a turn of phrase that meant something completely different many years ago than it, it does today. There's many different types of families and people have been asking uh, if uh, there will be discrimination in terms of which families would be uh, entitled to funding. Yeah, that's right. So about 42% of patients had concerns about access to same sex couples. And 41% expressed concern about single women and would they be able to avail of treatment, for example, with donor sperm. Um, so again, there, there just seems to be a real kind of lack of trust, unfortunately, about what that criteria will be. Will it be means tested? Will there be really long wait times for this treatment? You know, there, we really need a bit more clarity and some answers about this because the fertility treatment for couples or for individuals, they're already finding themselves in a very difficult and stressful situation. So it's been made worse by being kept in the dark with regards to the plans for this rollout, um, which was supposed to be September. But again, the clarity is uh, we haven't had much clarity around it as of yet. Okay, and how far will 10 million stretch? That's the thing. It depends how they're going to roll it out. We haven't had, we haven't been told specifically are the patients, they were thought originally patients were going to go to their individual clinics, but there's talk about... Um, potentially a centre. We really don't know. You know, whatever's been released so far, the patients know is the same as what the clinics know. But at this stage, it's not about individual clinics. It's about this group of patients putting their lives on hold and not having the enough information to be able to make informed decisions. Okay. Well, as you say, uh, you're looking for detail uh, and perhaps that will come before the next budget is announced. Uh, it should uh, be made available, though, by September. Hopefully, yes. So we're urging the government to move forward with this initiative and try and provide um, some guidance for these people. We'll we'll ask more details about the criteria um, and what it means for these um, individuals. 
Okay, thank you indeed, Karen, for uh, taking our call this morning. That's Karen Ferguson, Group Director of Nursing and Clinical Services with Sims IVF. Now, let me bring you some of the comments coming to us uh, today. A number of people in touch with us about the library books, the LGBTQ plus books. Uh, Jerry says, it's a library. The books are there to be read, whether you are gay or bisexual or transgender. Those online troublemakers are the same as the idiots, idiots who cause all of the trouble at the Grand National and the snooker at the weekend. If there's trouble from those, get the guardy, says Jerry James Andrade. As it says, anybody that tells a child to keep their sexuality a secret from their parents does not have the child's best interest at heart. Have we learned nothing from our past mistakes? Uh, some other calls uh, from people uh, who don't like the idea of these library books and uh, find it vile and disgusting and words like that used in uh, the text. I, I see one of them says it's all grooming. Uh, Tom and Navin says if the government fixed the housing crisis and caught up with the demand, the economy would go bust. Bank shares and bank values would drop and that's the bottom line, says Tom. Thank you indeed. If you've been in touch, our telephone number, if you want to make comment, 01983 text or WhatsApp 086 086- 6186586 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, just one other comment uh, for the moment uh, from Tom, who says, Michael, the mind boggles. One day we're talking about making abortions legal, the next day IVF and the cost of it. Uh, Tom seems to think uh, that's all wrong. He says it seems very wrong, doesn't it? Uh, it seems quite right, I think, probably. It uh, fits, I think, in with the modern Ireland that we have today and uh, the diversity that we are all experiencing in society and the acceptance that we have of other people, Tom, uh, and the way they wish their lives. So I think the uh, day of Holy Catholic Ireland uh, and uh, the church preaching to people how to live their lives is very much in the past. Uh, and abortions now have been legal for some time. It's just that they probably should be made more accessible. That's the uh, finding of uh, the independent review into the services. IVF, uh, certainly something that has been legal for a, a long time. The government uh, funding uh, will probably come online in September. It's how it's used, I suppose, is the question today. Uh, but it would seem uh, part of a, a modern Ireland, uh, I would think, Tom. I'm not sure what people think listening to us. Uh, but, of course, if uh, you do want to make comment on the programme today if you are listening to us our telephone number is 041-983-2000 give us a call on that number 041-983-2000 if you'd like to comment on the programme by texting us the number is 086-1800-658 or you can text that by WhatsApp the same number 086-1800-658 email michael at lmfm.ie now we're going to return to Belfast we've been hearing some of uh, the contributions uh, in Belfast at Queen's University over the course of uh, the last couple of days for that special international conference commemorating the 25th anniversary of uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And we'll go back uh, to some of uh, the events and uh, the interactions uh, that took place yesterday now and part of a a panel discussion that I think you'll find interesting. Mary Lou MacDonald, where were you in the 19th? Where were you? Where were you? Tell your accounts for your whereabouts. Um, So... I was thinking about this. I have like a, almost like a collage of recollections just of that time. My first, maybe my strongest, is 1994. 
31st of August. I'm walking down Henry Street in Dublin, uh, city centre, the greatest city in the world, as you know, Mark. <coughs> Controversial. I have, I have a thing which would be news to, to younger people here, a Sony Walkman. I remember those. Mm-hmm. I'm of that era. And the news of the ceasefire. And from, from there on in, it's like the, the nation kind of skipped a beat, held its breath. And then I have a whole collection of memories of long hours, glimpses through windows, people negotiating, Jerry Adams and Mark McGuinness in lockstep um, on very long walks, um, Liz O'Donnell, tearful and emotional, Bono finally holding Trimble's and Hume's hands aloft in a kind of rock and roll moment. Um, so all of that, but there, there is absolutely no doubt that that moment, I was a graduate student at that time, and at that moment, it was transformational for all of us, whether we realized it in that moment or not. And for me, it represented the moment where I decided that I would be active, that really? I would be an activist. Yeah. So for me personally, it was a, a very formative moment. And Colin Eastwood, you were probably in short trousers because you were only 14. <laughs> He's only a baby. Yeah, I have about two weeks left of my 40th birthday, so I'm milking that. But um, yes, I was 14. I uh, remember sitting up all night watching um, on Holy Thursday and the Good Friday watching. BBC or RTE? BBC, of course. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, and uh, the national broadcaster, you can guess which one it was. The, um, I remember saying that to Mark Durkham one time. You know, I sat up all night watching. I thought, oh, funny, we sat up all night too. Um, but uh, yeah, and actually I got involved in the SDLP just after that to, to get involved in the campaign for Good Friday Agreement because the SDLP ran a a very strong um, yes campaign and uh, I got involved I remember going out canvassing and seeing Pat Hume and Mark mm. Durkin and John Hume and it was just you know mesmerizing really mm-hmm. and the sense of hope as a young teenager given all that we've been through um, was immense. Interesting stuff from that panel discussion uh, from Colin Eastwood, uh, the SDLP leader, and Mary Lou MacDonald, uh, the Sinn Féin leader. Also on that panel at Queen's University yesterday was the DUP's Emma Little-Pengelly. Nationalists and unionists and, and everybody in between should work <laughs> together. And I, I, I cannot say this more clearly. You will not exclude your way out of this issue. What has happened, and the reason we don't have the institutions, is for a number of years it was repeatedly said that there was deeply and genuinely held concerns because of the guarantees of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement outlined in Annex A, Paragraph 1, that Northern Ireland in its entirety was to remain in the United Kingdom until such point as the people in a referendum voted otherwise. And people felt very strongly that the protocol damaged that 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 guarantee, it wasn't just a promise, it was a constitutional guarantee that opened up the way for unionists and nationalists to come into government together. And what we've heard repeatedly, including, I have to say at times uh, in this uh, conference, is a demeaning and dismissing of that. Like what we heard from the stage yesterday is this. It doesn't matter if you agree with those grievances. They exist, they're real, they're genuine. If they had been listened to, Two years ago, the institutions would not have collapsed. If the promises made to unionism in Northern Ireland had been fulfilled, the institutions would not have collapsed. I do want there to be hope. We need there to be hope. I want to build a better future for Northern Ireland. That can only happen with inclusion and consensus and us working together and listening to each other, even if we don't agree with where we are coming from. You were here yesterday. 
Did you hear Senator George Mitchell talking about the 100 percenters? Those people that it's not an inch, we're not going to move, we're not going to compromise on anything. The perception is that you have a lot of 100 percenters within the DUP. No, but I think that you have to again learn from our history. Why did the institutions not work just after the Belfast Good Friday Agreement until St Andrews? They didn't work because decommissioning hadn't been resolved. Prisoners were being released and yet decommissioning, not a single uh, bomb or gun had been handed in or, ha or handed back. Um, and therefore, that destabilised the institutions. These issues can de destabilise. If we look back in recent times, um, those big issues have destabilised institutions. Therefore, they can't be ignored. Ignoring these issues will not lead to stability. And therefore, we have to get round the table, discuss this, find a way of agreeing better, find a way of listening to each other, not allowing these grievances to rumble and get to the point where it causes a collapse, because we all want Northern Ireland institutions to work better. I've been involved in the institution since 2007, and the longest period of stability was under the DUP in Sinn Féin from 2007 until 2017. That's 10 years, and it isn't easy. It's compromise. It's talking about all these policy initiatives. It's finding a way through by working together. We need to get back at that, not shouting at each other and demeaning and calling our genuine grievances manufactured. That doesn't work. And that, those are not the principles of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. So if you're here and you're celebrating or you're marking the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, get back to those principles. Be authentic and follow those through because that is the solution to our current impasse at the moment. Thank you. You'd wonder what the problem is at all listening uh, to the DUP there. That's Enna Little-Pengeli speaking at uh, Queen's University and at this conference on uh, the 25th anniversary of uh, the Good Friday Agreement, looking back on the last 25 years. But what next? Here once again is the Sinn Féin president. I think the first order of business is to get the institutions back up and running. I mean, that, that is the first responsibility that we have. I mean, for me, I was, we were here yesterday. We heard extraordinary <coughs> words from Senator Mitchell, from President Hinton, from Tony Blair, from Bertie Hearn, and from others. And the challenge now has really crystallized for all of us because there's a retrospective piece acknowledging the spirit of 1998. But the real challenge for us now is what do we do next? Mm. And the first order of business next is that the North needs a functioning government. We need the North-South bodies up and running. We need the East-West relationship put back on a sustainable uh, footing. So a conversation about reform, of course, 25 years in, who could object to that? We certainly don't. But the first thing we need to do is to demonstrate again that we understand the absolute primacy of sharing power. That's the issue here, that we share power. And the, 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 the evidence has to, in, in that has to be almost a year on from the Assembly election that Michelle O'Neill takes position that the executive is formed and that you have an executive and a government that can work in the interest of everybody because I am so conscious that as time ticks away, we are missing precious opportunities. And I don't think that we can collectively defend that, nor should we try. So we need government up and running, and that means we need a decision from all political leaders that, again, we will work together, we will share power, we will have our differences, and God knows those are well 
rehearsed and well defined. But we have to have the common platforms now. I mean, Naomi talked about in her time making that decision. Do I stay or do I go? We have incredible people, especially our young people, right across this island. They may go and more, more power to them. They should always have the option to come back home. That's the critical bit. So that's what we need to measure up to now. So, And sorry to interrupt, but yeah. if Naomi says when I ask her about reform, we need to change the voting system in the Assembly, what is Sinn Féin saying? I, I have said to Naomi, and we've, we've said many, many times, let's sit down and let's discuss all of it. Let's have a look and see how everything works. But sacrosanct has to be the sharing of power, parity of esteem, the human rights and civic protections for, for people, which aren't concessions to any of us. They are absolutely every citizen's entitlement. But the discussion about reform, let's have it. But firstly, we need to get the show back on the road. And we need to do it very quickly. And that is uh, the Sinn Féin President, Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, we hope to hear more from uh, that conference in Belfast uh, later in the programme today, if you do stay with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, brought a memorandum of information uh, to government yesterday on the development of a new national demand management strategy. The aim of this is to reduce congestion in our towns and cities, improve air quality and provide more and safer space for public transport, walking and cycling and so on. They say that it's going to take a, a year uh, to complete this following widespread public uh, consultation, uh, but uh, they hope to free up road space uh, and give more space to people to get uh, about. There's a lot to be considered, uh, such as how space on the roads is allocated and maybe reallocating road space and having car-free zones, for example. Another part of this is legislation that is expected in the autumn, which will finally regulate uh, e-scooters. And we're going to speak now to Aisling Don, who's head of public policy in Ireland with the Bolt, uh, which produces e-scooters. And a very good morning to you, Aisling, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, I take it you'd argue that e-scooters should be part of the future in terms of trying to reduce congestions on Irish roads? Absolutely. I think they're a key part of helping people move away from using their private vehicles and and being able to use a range of different modes in their cities. So whether that be e-scooters to get them to public transport or to do their full journey on an e-scooter, an e-bike, a traditional bike, you kind of, I think we need to have the full range of options available if we're really going to see the kind of change in behaviour that we need. Are they safe? Absolutely. They're, at the moment in Ireland, and I know, um, you know some comments come up that they're being used on pavements or people are using them at an excessive speed. Uh, you know, there are concerns, but at the moment, e-scooters are not supposed to be used on the public road. So they're in a bit of a grey area whereby they should be, um, they're considered a mechanically propelled vehicle, an MPV, like a car, and therefore they should be taxed, insured, and the user should have a licence. But there is no regime available for them to be taxed, insured, and licensed. Mm. So users are kind of in a bit of a 
they're in a grey area. And so that's, I think, the reason why they aren't being strictly enforced by the Gardaí and, and the guards aren't, you know, banning their use on the road on a daily basis, even though technically they could do that. And, and so people are using them, but without any guidelines or any instructions from the Department of Transport, the Road Safety Authority, the NTA. And so there is some bad mm. behaviour out there, absolutely. No, a, and a, a, there has been a lot of bad behaviour, not just on yeah. the roads, as people will tell you, on footpaths as well. Absolutely. And, and our understanding and something that we strongly support is that the the guidelines and the regulations that are expected to come from the department shortly will specify that they cannot be used on pavements and they shouldn't be used on pavements the same way that bikes shouldn't be used on pavements. And, you know, they belong in the bike lane Mm. uh, and where there is no bike lane on the road. But what we're looking forward to seeing is the rollout of more and more bike lanes. And that is happening in cities and towns around Ireland. But yeah, Uh, as as things stand, uh, as the road space is allocated, there isn't the space for the bicycle lanes. roads that we're using really were built for horse and carts and you can't blame people to some degree for using their e-scooter on the footpath because they just feel it's too dangerous, that they're too much at risk if they're out in the road. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what I mean about guidelines and, and a more structured approach. So obviously, um, at the moment, because it is this grey area, people are kind of doing what they feel is best for them, what is safe. It's more a, a normal part of our transport services in Ireland. We'd like to see more cycle lanes and more, you know, slow roads. It's happening as part of Bus Connects that certain roads are going to be uh, kind of, you know, one street back from the main thoroughfare, but they're encouraged for cycle use because Mm. they've got lower rates of traffic. So there are solutions that are out there to make the roads safe for all road users. And and I think it's something the Department of Transport is working, you know, very actively on. And as you mentioned, even even the memo that went to Cabinet yesterday is dealing with some of these things. The legislation itself has been working its way through the door for the last, the door language on it for the last two years. And it's now in its final stages and we expect to see it signed into law in the coming weeks. Um, And that will give the Minister the power to make regulations and to be very specific about who can use scooters, where they can be used, when they can be used. And I think that will really give a lot of uh, reassurance and comfort and support to those who either use them or fear them and want to be sure that they're not being used inappropriately. Yeah, but there's so much inappropriate use of them, probably because of uh, that legislative vacuum uh, Mm -hmm. or the limbo that we find ourselves in. People going the wrong way up one-way streets uh, is something that uh, people often complain about, uh, as well as all of the incidents on footpaths, uh, the speed that people are, are driving at without helmet, helmets. People are, are concerned for their safety and particularly concerned uh, for the safety of children who are using e-scooters uh, because they don't have the road awareness, let's say, that somebody who has a, a driving licence has. Absolutely. So I, I suppose that is one thing that I think the Minister has addressed is, um, you know, people have asked that there be a minimum age of 16 or 18 and the Minister has said somewhat difficult because of course these can be bought online so it's hard to enforce it it's not like you have to go to you know um, a car uh, dealership uh, like you would to buy a car so that's something that I know the department is is grappling with and and trying to um, put the right structure in place from the perspective of the shared schemes so you know what both provides in other European countries and what we provide in Ireland for our e-bikes is that we have a mandatory um, minimum age of 18 Um, and we think that's just 
safe practice and, and that these are, because they can go, uh, you know, they have that extra battery support, we think they should be for adults only. And I think most operators who provide the shared schemes would have a minimum age of 18. So that's what we expect to roll out in Ireland. And, and we hope that the, you know, there will be guidelines provided by the department. Mm-hmm. Are e-scooters reliable because of the batteries? Yeah, so, I mean, e-scooters have come an awfully long way in the five years since they were first introduced. And at, at the beginning, um, the entire scooter had to be moved to be charged. The battery wasn't removable. Now the batteries are removable. So in the same way that we have with our e-bikes in Sligo, Kilkenny, uh, other parts of Ireland, um, we have a team who goes out in the evening and they can see through the app where the batteries are below a certain percentage. They go to those uh, bikes, remove the, the depleted battery and put in a fresh battery. And that happens every night of the week. Um, so... For for that reason, you can ensure that the bikes uh, and in the future the scooters are are fully charged and able to to do all the trips that are needed in the following day. So I think the reliability has really been resolved in a way that maybe when scooters first launched, there were those kind of issues. Mm. I take it the most expensive part of the machine is the battery. For the shared schemes, because they are very robust, they can be outside 365 days of the year. They're used to being used by, you know, multiple people multiple times a day. They, they're expensive enough uh, to begin with. But, uh, yes, the battery is definitely an expensive part of it. Okay, uh, because... Uh don't know. Somebody uh, has said uh, that um, it's too expensive to replace the battery uh, and that's why we're seeing fewer e-scooters on the roads these days. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, it's it's slightly different for us. Uh, every part of our scooter and our bike is recyclable, so we might have a situation that if something happens to a bike and part of it, you know, is damaged beyond repair, every other part of that bike can be used on another bike. Or uh, same for our scooters. Our batteries, um, we recycle them all, and we've partnered with We the recycling partner here in Ireland uh, and we're you know trying to investigate other uses for the batteries after they're finished their life um, but but we find uh, you know at the moment our batteries are lasting for um, years uh, up to five years is what the research is showing us so far so um, I suppose they're, they're kind of industrial strength batteries so they do last longer than the private uh, owners would Okay, uh, quite often in cities you see e-scooters that have just been abandoned by the last user uh, are quite often lying on the ground in the middle of a footpath. Yeah, that that's a really, um, I suppose, unfortunate kind of behaviour that's happened in some European cities and it's given people a kind of a negative impression of scooters and, and made them fearful, I suppose, of, of what the impact would be on some cities in Ireland. What we operate, and I think is hopefully where the industry is is trending towards is um, designated virtual parking bays. So that's usually at bike racks, but it also could be a repurposed car parking space designated uh, as a virtual parking bay. So we operate that in Ireland for our e-bikes. And when we roll out e-scooters here, we'll be doing the same. So to give you an example, in Sligo, we have, you know, 51 of those virtual parking bays, uh, which provides a really good network of places where you can start and stop your journey. But you absolutely cannot stop your journey anywhere but in those at those 51 spots. So you can't just leave it outside the restaurant you're going to or your place of work. You need to look on the map and find where is the closest virtual parking bay and bring the bike to there. Mm. And that ensures that you don't have people just leaving them on the pathway, which in itself presents hazards for other pedestrians and other road users. So that's something we're 
very and good. they're very yeah. active and, mm. and trying to avoid and, and have done so in Ireland. Uh, and talk to me a little bit more about the technology that uh, you can employ in terms of making these scooters available to people because uh, you can stop them from going down pedestrian streets or possibly in the wrong direction of a, a one-way street or uh, you can uh, maybe stop somebody from using one of these if they're coming out of that restaurant or the boozer as the case may mm. be uh, if uh, they haven't got their faculties. Absolutely. So there's a lot of technology out there that we're, we've developed and that we've also been using from, from other providers. So one example is um, cognitive reaction testing. So that's a, a little test on the screen that we put on between certain hours, so maybe between midnight and 5am or 6am, depending on, on what the city uh, council, you know, thinks is best we work with them but so that's a little test if somebody's trying to unlock a bike or a scooter we make them do it first and they have to you know catch a helmet moving around the screen if their reaction time is slow we conclude that they've perhaps had you know alcohol and therefore wouldn't be in the right state to be cycling or scooting and we don't unlock the bike and we advise them to find another way home so that's our way of ensuring that the service can stay open at night time when you might have people who work in the service industry and you know due to other public transport options being closed at night really need to rely on you know a scooter or an e-bike and um, but we also want to make sure that people who've been drinking can't use it okay As I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Uh, t- t- tell me uh, what your vision for e-scooters in Ireland would be, because I think everybody would like to think that the people driving them, the riders, would be safe and that they wouldn't be a nuisance to other people. But if it's to work in towns and villages and cities across this country that have roads that were built for horse and carts, does that mean uh, when it comes to reallocating road space that you probably would reduce two lanes of traffic down to one for cars in other words you'd have pedestrian cars uh, cycling and e-scooters and everybody going in the same direction I I suppose um well, the vision that I have, and, and you're right, it does differ whether it's a city or a town or a village. So, um, you know, the, the further, the smaller the area, the less alternatives there are and the more people need to rely on their cars. And so that's a given. You know, you, you can't expect that the same solutions will work in a village as they will in Dublin or Limerick or Cork. Um, having said that, I think the, the national average is that... Uh, 40% of car journeys taken are three kilometres or less in Ireland. Now, that is a statistic that shows that an awful lot of our car journeys could be replaced by an active travel mode or a shared travel mode, uh, meaning cycling, walking, scooting. And, and if we do that, the knock-on effects in terms of our emissions, in terms of our congestion, our public realm space, the amount of car lanes we need is is amazing. You know, so there are some people who, because of the alternatives they have or the distance they need to travel or their mobility or the fact that they need to transport, you know, goods or any of that mean that they can't move away from a private car. That's understandable. But there are an awful lot of people who could be moved into these kind of modes. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Uh, And I I think we're, you know, that's certainly part of the vision from the Department of Transport, too. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for taking the time to be with us. That's Ashling Dunn, who's head of public policy in Ireland with the Bolt. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Green backlash is looming in the form of a new party that will defend farmers and campaign on rural issues with plans to target 15 seats 
and a role in government. The Irish Daily Mail reveals on its front page story today, Brian Mahan reports that Roscommon Galway TD Michael Fitzmaurice has issued a rallying cry to potential candidates, telling them it's the last round in the fight for rural Ireland. Let's speak to Michael Fitzmaurice now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I think there's a a lot of people across the country who feel uh, as uh, you do, as you articulated it there. Uh, Do you believe uh, that there is the mood for a new political party? Well, in my opinion at the moment, um, when you listen to people on the ground, Michael, and good morning to all your listeners, um, there's there's a lot of people in the rural areas that feel that there's a lot of stuff going on that um, they have no input into. Second of all, that um, there are there's an awful lot of uncertainty, especially in the agricultural sector. Um, and in my opinion, um, and I've said this time and time, I've actually said it on your programme before, um, if you look at the mathematics of dolls going back the years, say, remember Tony Gregory's time, there might be four or five uh, people required. The way the doll seems to be moving at the moment, and I think uh, people wouldn't disagree with my analysis, that the next doll will be made up of the likes of Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin together, if they go together, or um, two parties, two larger parties, and a, um, a smaller group, depending on the mathematics of it. And, you know, the tsunami of stuff that is coming and has come to the rural areas. Example, the likes of the nature restoration law um, that's going to, you know, in parts of the country, uh, 20% of the land will be, under the, the proposed nature restoration law, would be taken out of production. You've here, you've covered it yourself, or talking, there's talks about culling and denying culling, there's banding, there's all different types of... Um, sort of vibes, rules, mm. regulations being brought in and it's leaving an awful lot of uncertainty and an awful lot of people that don't know whether they're coming or going and it's a sad day Michael and look what I hear it daily because I'd be involved a lot in the agricultural side of it you have a lot of farmers nearly ashamed to say that they're a farmer even though they were producing probably the best food in the world and that kind of continues, simple as that mm-hmm. and in my opinion um, with some of the decisions that's going to be made over the next few years um, in some of the stuff that I'm after outlining to you. Um, these decisions is not for tomorrow or the next day. This is going to be for the next 5, 10, 15 years. And if these decisions are made, um, it will decimate parts of the countryside um, and a lot of rural people will be disenfranchised and um, it will cause havoc, in my opinion. And unless, you know, the likes of um, like-minded people, um, be it from business, agriculture, be it that you're working for mm-hmm. someone that live or work in rural Ireland. And when I talk about rural Ireland, I'm talking about towns, I'm talking about villages, I'm talking about the countryside, I'm not just talking about um, a person that owns land or anything. Mm-hmm. That if, if something isn't done in relation to that, we, we are, in my opinion, we're in trouble, and I'm being honest about it, and I've made it very clear. Yeah, whether, whether it's the pub or the post office or yeah, whatever yeah, the case yeah, may be. You're not unique, and Irish people are not unique in feeling this, and that was reflected because governments across the world, and certainly in Europe, are intent on reducing carbon emissions, so there's a lot of pressure on rural areas as a result of that, and that resulted in the Dutch political party, New Party, taking 15 seats, 20% of the vote. Uh, we'd uh, The Irish Farmers Journal talk about a similar 
political group to the BBB uh, being established here after uh, that victory for them in those uh, elections. Uh, But I I wonder if this has started uh, because their leader apparently, according to the Irish Daily Mail today, was at an event that you attended as well on Sunday, the inaugural meeting of the Farmers' Alliance. What is the Farmers' Alliance? Well, the Farmers' Alliance is a group of farmers that have come together from different parts of the country. Um, I, I went to the meeting to listen to what they had to say um, but you could hear from everybody there um, be it a beef farmer be it a sheep farmer be it a dairy farmer um, be it a person that's grown trees because the reality at the moment is that um, even though the Greens are in government you cannot put in a licence to plant trees if you want at this minute which is rather unusual and there's a lot of people feel left out or feel that the wind or the headwind is blowing very strong against them and that they won't survive or live in their area um, with some of the rules and regulations that's being put together and that's and and what i am saying is right at the end of the day um you can have farmer organizations and they have their place and they do a lot of work a lot of them um but at the end of the day michael it's about a programme for government and what's in a programme for government. And while I might be a no admirer of some of the policies that the Green Party pursue, in fairness to them, they have their 12 TDs, they have got um, a lot of their their agenda across on the programme for government. And um, while I mightn't agree with it, they have got what they believe in uh, and getting it through. And unless rural Ireland do something similar in the opposite way, well then... In my opinion, the, you know this won't keep continuing. If if the nature restoration law comes in and takes out a heap of land that people are farming, um, that it's of a peaty nature where they've shored it down through the years, they won't survive farming. That's the reality. Mm-hmm. And this isn't going to be today or tomorrow, Michael. This is not alone this generation. It's for the the youngsters that's coming up as well. And if we don't do something like that. Um, well then, in my opinion, we're in trouble. But the youngsters, the youngsters spoke clearly in the last election, didn't they? That was why the Greens had such a surge in their support, uh, because say, young young say, people I'd would have said we want to do our part, and Ireland should do its part, uh, and that those who don't want to reduce carbon emissions, particularly in agriculture, are, are uh, looking for somebody else to do well, their part all, for them, and to a large part, they're climate deniers. First of all, Michael, oh, yeah, yeah, look at the media, I'll always throw this type of stuff at you. Uh, in relation to the whole environmental issues, farmers are the keepers of the land. They do more for the environment than many other people, and indeed, people in rural Ireland, look at tidy towns, look at the amount of works that's done, the community, the mehel spirit that's, that's right around it. And second of all, Michael, if you do analyse it, and you're pretty good at doing that, if you do analyse their vote, um, there wasn't many rural constituencies that they would be represented in. It would be more of larger urban areas. So I don't see uh, how you can come up with the conclusion that the youngsters in rural Ireland voted for the Greens. Okay, well, a large part of the vote that they got was from young people, probably in urban centres, uh, as you say. Yeah. Uh, and there is uh, certainly... And it's very easy for someone in an urban centre to say, you know, like you have to live and work in an area. There's no point, Mike, if it's smart commenting on yeah. inner, inner city Dublin because I don't know is the same way as I know rural Ireland and in fairness um, there is a lot of farmers doing a lot of great work out there at the moment but the problem is Michael mm. there is no clear pathway for them for be it people in business then is affected because they don't know is this going to be a cull will 
Johnny be going down the road buying the meal or will Johnny be having everything organic uh, they don't know their future and when you leave an uncertainty like that you leave a vacuum where you won't have investment going on and we need investment in mm. rural areas in every part of it and you need people to be able to live work in the environment you need to keep like, the schools and everything going like that and unless you have certainty and a clear pathway and unfortunately like, right, I'll give you an example we don't know next December and farmers ring me and I just say I don't know because I'm not over it um, down through the years farmers always in the from September on that they'd go along and they'd tidy up their hedges they don't know now what they have to do with that stuff whether they'll be one time ago they always or down through the years they, they put it all together and they burned it and now we don't know do the, what they have to do with it or will it be an extra expense we look at the farmers in the dairy sector there's banding we look at the farmers in beef and sheep they don't know their future. This is the problem that's going on. We hear the suckler sector needs reducing. And when you bring all that type of stuff together, it is leaving a, 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 a situation where the, the basically there's no, you're not moving forward. And if you don't move mm-hmm. forward, well, then you're in trouble. And I, I suppose from the perspective of uh, this conversation, uh, the question is, does that vacuum create... Uh, political vacuum similar to the one that was filled by the BBB in the Netherlands uh, and can we expect a, a political alliance or party to be formed going into the next general election here? Well, like, I, I've been very clear that if that doesn't happen, Michael, we're in trouble. That's been quite frank about it. There's no point in, in Molly Codlin about it. And, uh, you know, I've been very clear at saying that if we don't have something like that, well, there's no point in me walking around Minster House on my own because if you look at the mathematics of the way it's going now, now there's even the last election, right, for example, mm-hmm. um, a group of us, three of us, went in to meet, it was actually Simon Coveney at the time, and he was very polite to us, but he says, look, at, um, we need a, a big number or a bigger number and we will be uh, talking to the Greens and we will be trying to do a deal with them. And that's the bottom line on it. There's no point in trying to dress it up different. And that's my angle on it. And we can talk about it. We can give out about it. At the end of the day, if we don't get in, um, if we don't do something like this, um, well, then we'll, we'll, we'll be the generation that let a lot of things slip. Okay. Uh, and uh, have you any of the other independent TDs on board? Well, I've talked to other independent TDs and I've talked to people from farming communities and I've talked to people from business and I've talked to people that are working at different jobs and there seems to be a good appetite. But this isn't about Michael Fitzmaurice. This is about trying to get people together uh, to do something for rural Ireland. This is about rural Ireland. This isn't about me or any other independent TD or any other person that's in the farming community. This is about trying to do something or put policies together to make sure that we, you know, it's not about reversing a lot of things. It's about trying to stop the tsunami that's coming down the line, to put it very simple. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and uh, we'll watch that space, as they say. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme uh, today. That's uh, Michael Fitzmaurice, who's a TD for Roscommon Galway. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. I want to bring you some more of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us uh, this morning. And thanks very much to everybody who's uh, been in touch. We were talking about uh, the library books uh, that people are objecting to because it's to do with same-sex relationship and transgenderism and so on, aimed at 12 to 17-year-olds. We read out uh, some of uh, the comments uh, from people earlier on, but somebody texted in saying, so does this mean there can be no questions asked about this or or put forward uh, can we not put forward an opposing view it's called abuse says our caller you see the thing is I don't think it is called abuse I mean I think most people would trust in the librarians uh, to take a good look at these books rather than reading two lines or a hundred words on the internet and being told it's abuse but that they would censor the books if you like uh, that they would look at them and decide well that's age appropriate and they're very skilled professional people uh, and because they're in the libraries uh, and they've been selected by the librarians uh, and they do it uh, on the basis as to whether it's age appropriate or, or not uh, in terms of making them available I think we have to put trust in their professional ability to do that uh, and if uh, we suggest otherwise uh, well then it only stirs up emotion in people and people get very annoyed and start acting irrationally quite often about these things. Uh, Tom Navin was in touch as well and he says he just wants to respond. I read out Tom's uh, text earlier on. He says, I just want to respond to you, if I may, on your flippant remark that sure it's the world we live in today, inclusive and diverse, and that the end of the church telling us how to live our our lives uh, allows us to do this. Uh, Tom says the church only gives advice you can live how you want but my point is the world is on a race to the bottom I know this, you know this 99% of people I talk to feel this too, it's totally all about money thank you if you read this out delighted to read it out Tom and thank you indeed for sharing your thoughts with us Paddy Duffy in touch with us saying the inevitable has finally come to pass the DUP are now friendless on these two islands, Europe and the US. Their sectarianism and hateful bigotry are now apparent to everyone. Thank you. Jerry in touch saying, Michael, is there any way that person uh, we were talking to from the Bolt about e-scooters could use that same technology when it comes to the illegal use of quad bikes and scramblers, especially on country roads? It's an interesting question, Jerry, and I think if the answer was yes, it would be very interesting and if that was the case I'm sure somebody would be saying why not it might put Jerry top of the list of uh, the people saying why not it does sound like a, a good idea doesn't it uh, Margaret says e-scooters are dangerous a lot of children use them and they don't use them properly they should be taxed and insured and the user licensed if they're going to be left on the roads I'm fed up of all of the drivers having to take responsibility for themselves as well as others we all have to take responsibility when we're on the roads no matter what mode of transport, cyclists and walkers included. We don't all have access to bus routes or taxis so we need our car which is heavily taxed by the government from the day you get it and now the government wants us out of our cars with no other means of transport in place for us. Typical Ireland the cart is always put before the horse says Margaret. Thanks as always for your message Margaret. Always good to hear from you and uh, to hear some of your thoughts uh, that you've been sharing with us. 
Now, uh, we're going to go back to Belfast. No, actually, we won't go back to Belfast. Uh, I think we'll go to Derry uh, because a separate event took place in Derry yesterday evening. Bill Clinton, the former American president who was in Belfast the day before, uh, was in Derry last night uh, for a special occasion to commemorate the work of David Trimble and John Hume and the very important roles that they played in the Good Friday Agreement. I want to thank particularly... All of you, and uh, for the dedication of the song to Lara McKee on what would have been the fourth anniversary of her death. Her life was a testament to the unlimited potential of the people of Northern Ireland, and especially its rising generation. And her death is a powerful reminder that there are few permanent victories in politics or life. And if we believe something, we need to be willing to stand for it as long as we draw breath. We owe it to her to choose, in her words, to say goodbye to bombs and bullets once and for all. This audience is made up mostly of people who were younger than Lyra. You will decide what to do with it. I was really pleased that that wonderful film about her was was produced uh, with the support of Hidden Lights, the documentary company that Hillary and our daughter Chelsea founded, which seeks to tell the stories of what they call gutsy women all over the world. Most of you here were born after the Good Friday Agreement, but it was your future that John Hume and David Trumbull were thinking about. I promise they were. We talked about it many times. They were thinking about those of you who weren't here then. You have inherited a freedom to pursue your dreams instead of reliving your parents' nightmares. You are talented, energetic, creative, more focused on what unites you and your neighbors and what divides you. You are the hope, not just of Northern Ireland, but of places divided all over the world today. Former American President Bill Clinton talking about the Good Friday Agreement, John Hume, David Tribble and indeed Lyra McKee, as well as the young people he was speaking to and what the future holds for them. A lot of that, of course, depends on the politicians. This was Mr Clinton's message to politicians in the North. So what do you say we do something to lift our brief lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives? That is the ultimate gift of the Good Friday Accord. Oh, today we're discussing what it would take to get Stormont back up, and I think that's important, and based on what I've heard, it can fairly easily be done if we want to, but you can always find an excuse to say no. If you're having a fight in your home, you can always find an excuse to say no. If you're struggling with any kind of relationship or struggle, 
You can always find an excuse to say no. Getting to yes is humanity's great trial and great goal. The people we honour today got to yes. Bill Clinton, that's our programme. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.